I really want to thank Miro, one of the most useful tools. They sponsor this podcast. They are my go-to resource when it comes to working remotely and collaborating. They're also great for an office, but let me paint a picture for you. Everyone here is working from home in some capacity. Either we have peers that work from home, maybe we're part in the office, part out. Collaboration can be chaotic. Miro is the ultimate digital whiteboard and visual collaboration platform. You could be a remote team, you could be a creative agency, you could be a solopreneur. Miro allows you to brainstorm, plan, and execute seamlessly. Picture this, you're in a virtual meeting mapping out a huge project with Miro. You can drag and drop sticky notes, sketch wireframes, organize ideas all in real time. You collaborate with your team no matter where they are. This is a game changer. If you are ready to transform your workflow, you have to try Miro today. To show you how powerful it is, I created my own Miro board that you can check out at Miro.com slash success pod. It has a ton of resources for entrepreneurs, but it will also show you all the functionality of Miro. So go to Miro.com or go to Miro.com slash success pod for a ton of resources. Try Miro today. It's going to radically change how you collaborate with your team. Welcome to Success Story, the most useful podcast in the world. I'm your host, Scott D. Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network and the Blue Wire Podcast Network. The HubSpot Podcast Network has incredible podcasts like My First Million. My First Million is hosted by Sam Parr and Sean Puri. They feature famous guests. They discuss how companies made their first million and then some. They brainstorm new business ideas based on the hottest trends and opportunities in the marketplace. Here are some of the topics they talk about. If you like any of these, you will love the show. Three profitable business ideas that you should start in 2022. Drunk business ideas that could make you millions. Asking the founder of Grammarly how he built a $13 billion company or SaaS companies that anybody can start. If these topics are up your alley, go check out My First Million. Listen to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. Today, my guest is Salim Ismail. He is a serial entrepreneur angel investor, author, speaker, and technology strategist. He is the founding executive director of Singularity University and lead author of Exponential Organizations. In March 2017, he was named to the board of the XPRIZE Foundation. He has been building disruptive digital companies as a serial entrepreneur since the early 2000s. As a prolific speaker, Salim gives more than 150 talks per year to audiences of all sizes around the world. He has been profiled across a vast array of media outlets, including the New York Times, Bloomberg Businessweek, Fortune, Forbes, Wired, Vogue, and the BBC. He is a sought-after strategist and a renowned technology entrepreneur who built and sold his company to Google. So today we're going to speak about all the things that Salim speaks on and teaches. We're going to speak about the keys to disruption and innovation. We're going to see why some of the largest organizations have trouble keeping up with some of the most smallest, agile organizations and why small, disruptive organizations always seem to win. We're going to speak about the immune response to evolution and disruption in organizations, how the world deals with multiple Gutenberg moments at the same time. We're also going to speak about how Salim plans to break and fix the world. We're going to speak about exponential thinking, uh, disrupting government, and the future of civilization and governance. So an incredible episode. Hope you enjoy. This is Salim Ismail. He is a serial entrepreneur, angel investor, author, speaker, and technology strategist. So uh, first of all, great to be here. Uh, I'm originally from India. Um, ended up in Canada when I was 10 years old. Uh, my dad hated noise, dirt, 
pollution and corruption. So India's not so great for that. Um, did schooling in university there. I went to Waterloo, the big tech university, and I went to Europe from there for 10 years, doing five years of systems architecture, building large-scale systems, and then five years of management consulting. And uh, uh, couldn't start a business in Europe, so I came to New York City and built a the predecessor to Twitter. Uh, unfortunately, 18 months too early, uh, very bad to be early in the tech space, better to be late. Um, uh, when you're early, you just teach, teach the marketplace how to do it, and then somebody else comes along and rolls you over. Um, um, but it got me well-known, ended up on the West Coast as the head of innovation at Yahoo, and, and kind of hit across the fundamental problem that is driving a lot of my thinking now, which is when you try anything disruptive in a legacy organization, the immune system attacks you, because all of our organizations are built to resist change and withstand risk, and yet that's the harder bit, right? Uh, and I'd set up a relationship between Yahoo and NASA to do some interesting projects together. And one day the NASA people invited me to the founding conference of Singularity University, where they brought 70 thought leaders around the Bay Area and said, is it worth creating an educational institution uh, only focused on accelerating technologies? Um, I somehow had never met or come across Ray Kurzweil or uh, uh, Peter Diamandis or the XPRIZE or even the Singularity. Um, and so I was kind of blown away. I asked a lot of questions. About two weeks later, Peter says, do you want to run it? Um, I remember getting off the phone. My wife goes, how was your phone call? And I'm like, I'm a dean. Uh, I don't know how that happened. Uh, In-laws are permanently confused. Um, and seven years of building a singularity, I think, was incredibly seminal. Um, probably my secret superpower is that if there's a lecture, lab, workshop, discussion on blockchain or autonomous cars or CRISPR or drones or or neuroscience breakthroughs, I've heard each one like 60 times. Mm -hmm. So as my wife says, I can pretend to speak about anything at this point. Um, and that gave me an insight that we have 20 Gutenberg moments hitting us at the same time. The, the printing press in the 15th century fundamentally changed the world. Well, solar energy fundamentally changed the world. And then you have blockchain that totally changed the world. AI completely changes the world. In general, we've had these kinds of breakthroughs once every few decades. And we have, I think we have 20 of them hitting us all at the same time. And this is blowing our industries and blowing up our institutions globally. And I'm probably most focused on the structural change happening in society because of the massive tidal wave of these technology breakthroughs hitting us at the same time. Um, and uh, I wrote the book on the back of that, basically saying we need to organize in a completely new way. And we noticed that uh, over the last 10 years, a completely new breed of organization was emerging where they'd learned how to scale the org structure as fast as you could scale technology. Um, we've learned how to scale technology very well. Zero to a million users, Amazon cloud services, you can do it pretty quickly, but building the org structure and the actual organization, as any entrepreneur knows, uh, is painfully incremental and linear. And so how, how we saw a new breed of organization and basically analyzed 200 of the fastest growing companies and said, how are they doing this? How are they? How is TED scaling so fast using TEDx or Uber not hiring its own drivers or Airbnb leveraging other people's assets? And that's essentially where the EXO model came from. What's interesting is even the examples that you mentioned, they're, they're organizations, were they birthed in these 20 Gutenberg moments or were they organizations that were legacy? Because I don't think, well, obviously not Airbnb and Uber and whatnot and TED. I actually don't know when the inception point of TED was, but... Um, all the examples you're mentioning are companies that were sort of growing and going through awkward periods when all these technologies were available. So I feel like the people that were attracted to these organizations, even the leadership, they were a little bit more forward thinking. Now, when you look at the largest organizations in the world, they've been around for 30, 40, 50, 60, 100 plus years. Yeah. So 
when we look at the the people that are making moves and the people that are disrupting, they are the Airbnbs and the Ubers and whatnot and the Netflix of the world. But have you seen and have you noticed with legacy organizations, them trying to adapt, trying to keep up, or is this exponential thinking? Is it is it too much for a legacy organization to properly implement because of the insane amount of layers, the insane amount of right. bureaucracy? So uh, a big question. Uh, there's a few different answers to that. For the most part, they can't figure this out, right? When we encountered, when we talked to the CEOs of a big company, be it Dow Chemical or Caterpillar or Credit Suisse, it took on average, they'd hear about these disruptions and then it took them three years to actually do anything about it, right? <laughs> so that's kind of the opportunity of the cost of that three years is kind of infinite Same. today. Yeah. yeah, like when a big bank first hears about blockchain, it literally takes them about three years because what will happen is they'll hear about these and go, holy crap, the CEO or C-suite fellow will go back to the home office, will sound like a raving lunatic, right? They'll give him a, a white coat on medicine and ask him to stand in the corner while they do the important work. Eventually, he'll be go on enough that somebody will be sent out to Silicon Valley. They'll they'll go back and go, oh my God, this is crazy. They'll triangulate and go, okay, we need to set up an outpost over there. So they set up an outpost with people in Silicon Valley and people get those people get excited. When they come back in, they sound like crazy people. So they get ignored. Then the CEO changes and you start all over again. And that kind of pattern is just, it takes a long time to turn a, a super tanker, right? And then you turn the rudder and nothing happens for a while until the ship, uh, the ocean. It's that same type of analogy. We do see a complete shift with younger CEOs and younger entrepreneurs because they've grown up native to this environment and are doing things in this way. There's a great little story I have about this. When I we were building out Singularity, we had, um, it was about six months in, the dean of one of the top two business schools in the world comes to visit. And he's like super annoyed. He's got a whole bunch of articles circled in newspapers about us. And he's like, what the hell are you doing? There's like $2 million of PR here. And I, I'm arguably the best business school in the world. I can't buy a newspaper, uh, an article in a newspaper. What are you doing? So we try and explain the model, da, 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 going through it. And at some point he goes, well, you know, how big is your team? And there was like five of us. And I said, well, you know, it's us. And his mind broke. Like, literally, he was like, ah. Uh, he goes, my personal staff in my office is 12 people. Like, you can't build a university with five people. And I'm like, well, we are. Yeah. And there's nothing special we're doing. We're using Google Docs for everything. We're multi assigning multiple hats to multiple. Just startup style. Yeah. He could not get his head around that. About about 10 minutes later, he goes, can we, can we go outside and play Frisbee? And the next two hours, he was just playing Frisbee outside. We literally broke his mind. And that really struck me. I was like, wait. Like that guy's running the biggest business school in the world and cannot get his head around this. What hope is there for any of this? Right? And one more very quick follow-up. About five years ago, I did a talk, a keynote to the a conference of 700 deans of business schools. Who knew, but once a year, they all get together. Organizer excitedly announces me and says, hey, we're going to hear from Salim, latest in the EXO stuff. Except what he sees is complete blank looks from the audience. And he notices this and goes, ah, uh, he was... How many of you have heard of EXO? And out of 700 deans of business schools, like two put up their hands. Now, if you're a car designer, you may or may not like Tesla, but you should goddamn know that you it's know, there. You know like, what it is. Like, <laughs> and they have no idea that this new paradigm exists. It just it was just unbelievable because every business school in the world teaches you how to build a 20th century organization. There's simply no business school in the world that can teach you how to build Uber. So what's the, what's the lever you have to pull, in your opinion? Do you think it's to to convince those deans or to educate those deans, or do you think it's to go into the largest organizations in the world and you're going to have a trickle-down effect into the business schools? Uh, no. Uh, I don't think you can fix it because uh, academia has the worst immune system in the world. 
more so than like Fortune 500. Way, way worse. I think it goes like uh, big companies uh, as a bad immune system. Our institutions like education and journalism and uh, healthcare have their own immune system. Then you have academia, which has its own immune system, and they're probably the worst is religion, where yeah. they'll they'll like kill you if you don't follow the religion, right? Like <laughs> it's like it's rather dramatic. So I kind of grade immune systems at that level. And we've got a great slide that was put together by Riyaz Shah, the head of global learning at Ernst and Young, showing here is sixty things that you'll hear that indicate an immune system response. We can't do it; it's not a priority. Uh, we are not set up for this; it'll never work. Uh, all of the normal hundreds of reasons to say no to something yeah. right and there's ways of beating this and we found ways that big companies can adapt but it's very rare to see overall we're pushing the envelope and we've got a methodology now to transform big companies uh, but most actually don't believe it because they just can't see how you get there so what is the what is the result that you're trying to achieve with singularity like if you said for example you're talking to a big company like yeah and i would say before we go down that rabbit hole and see how we can actually uh, build the company that we should be building. Yeah. Um, are, are there companies that do it? Is like an IBM? Yeah. So we, so I'll give you a great data point. When we launched the book, we, um, we scored the fortune 100 yeah. on this model. We said, okay, to what extent does IBM use lean startup thinking? To what extent is GE purpose driven or not? To what extent is Procter and Gamble has, has decentralized decision-making and we scored them because we have a survey, a diagnostic that, that scores a big company. And I did a segment on CNBC Squawk Box and published this index. Here are the Fortune 100 ranked by the flexibility, agility, scalability of their org structures. Um, and it was a nice little marketing thing. We just finished a seven-year trailing analysis of that index. <laughs> and the numbers are unbelievable. If you're comparing, We're comparing the top 10 most flexible, agile, scalable of the Fortune 100 compared to the least flexible, mm -hmm. in our opinion. We tracked them over seven years. The top 10 outperformed the bottom 10 by like 3x on revenue growth, 6.4 times on profitability, 11 times on for return on equity, but shareholder returns, which is the compound annual growth rate, top 10 beat the bottom 10 by 40x over seven years. Wow. Like you can't make this up, right? And we actually did an R-squared analysis to make sure this was statistically real. So because the, the umbrella thesis is pretty simple. As the, as the external world becomes more volatile, your ability to adapt is going to drive market value. And now we can prove it like six ways to Sunday. So the big challenge now becomes how do you take a big company and make it more agile? And we have some good indicators and some good precedents. Um, uh, Larry Page from Google came to me a few years ago and said, hey, your unit at Yahoo is really successful. Should I build an incubator at Google? I said, don't. You'll have the same immune system response. But do something like it. Keep it stealth pointed into adjacent areas. And you see the result is Google X where they have their core information processing capability in the mothership, and they use hardware, Google Car, Google Glass, contact lenses, to go into adjacent areas, right? The master of this technique is Apple. Uh, obviously, hyper successful company. Uh, they're, yes, they have a great design capability. Yes, they have a great technology supply chain. I will argue that Apple's core innovation is organizational. Because what they do, unlike anybody else in the world, is they will form a small team that's really disruptive. They will take that team to the edge of the company. They will keep them secret and stealth. And they will say to that team, go disrupt another industry. And, right? and when you say secret and stealth, like what is that actually? So like the main, the mothership does not know what's happening. Like Steve Jobs, when he put the Mac team away really? in a separate and they, room. And they give them their funding and their budget and they just say, do whatever you want. And no, no, no. They may say, they'll give, they'll give them direction. Okay. Go, go disrupt payments. 
But or, so okay. here's how Apple works. They have a portfolio of teams investigating the future of cars, payments, retail, watches, uh, 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 whatever, education, you name it. And when they think an industry or product area is ready for disruption, they go into it and disrupt it. And then they iterate their product very aggressively. Um, not only does nobody else do this, nobody's even noticed that this is all they do. Right? So when they think something's ready for disruption, they go, there's no limit to their market cap. Of course. Uh, when they hit a trillion dollars, I was the first person to say they will hit a $2 trillion market cap just because they can just keep going to industry after industry using this model. When something works, they fold it back into the mothership uh, into the back into the iTunes platform. When it doesn't, nobody knows about it. No, nobody knows about it, or they'll fail it elegantly, etc. But it gives them, uh, it, they're essentially an incubator of breakthrough ideas with the platform of design and technology as key strength. But the key innovation is organizational, right? Now, other team, other companies are learning how to do this. IBM, Microsoft has done an unbelievable job of switching from a product sale to a subscription model with Microsoft Office. Just, just unbelievable. I think Sachin Adelis would get like a Nobel Prize in business for doing this. Uh, there have been two times in history that we could track where this worked. Uh, and those two examples were IBM and Apple in the 90s and so on. Only when they were, had a quarter or two left of cash. And they had absolute charismatic leader in Lou Gerstner or Steve Jobs. Mm. No other company in deep trouble has ever managed to make it. So you need a bunch of uh, questions. We've been focusing on a tool set to transform legacy organizations, and we've cracked it. It's working. Uh, but getting a big organization to, they have to first realize they're in trouble, B, believe that there's the a path through it, that actually then actually take on that path. It's like a patient who first hears they have cancer. They don't want and to they, like, they don't want to know, right? Yeah. And they're not set up to know. And you have to kind of wake them up and shock them, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I want to unpack what that toolkit is because that's very interesting. But I also yeah. want to understand, uh, going back to that Apple model, when they, and I'm sure that some of this plays into the toolkit as well, but the people. So when you build out these uh, these teams that are separate from the mothership and they're doing their thing and they're investigating and they're trying to disrupt, yeah. Um, what's the what's the person that you're hiring for for this particular role? Because I want to I want to figure out that person so that somebody listening to this is like, if I want to build a company now, yeah. I need to be looking for these attributes or these traits. Sure. So if you're hiring for, so the key concept here is you do not do disruptive innovation in the mothership. You do it at the edge of the organization pointing into adjacent spaces. Okay. Really important. Um, now, how do you hire for that? There's two ways. If you're hiring from inside, then the, every company has about 5% of people that are totally nuts, super smart, very loyal, but super hard to manage. And you never know where you're going to fire them or they're going to quit anyway. Those are the ones. Grab them, put them at the edge, and go. Say, go this way, right? Build, go and build an EXO off the edge of the company. Uh, the best corporate analog we have is Nestle spinning off Nespresso. For about three years, Nestle ran Nespresso as a line of business. It was just a mess; didn't go anywhere because it doesn't fit inside the corporate structure of food processing, etc. <coughs> Excuse me. You finally set it on the edge, separate, independent. Boom! Multi-billion-dollar line of business, right? And so that's the key formulas, put it at the edge into adjacent spaces. Uh, if you're setting up a new co at the edge, then you ideally want to hire from the outside because anybody from the inside that has any depth of experience will be useless for the future anyway. You need somebody as young as possible and as crazy as possible. Okay, so let's talk about the formula. So now those are the right people for that, but when, yeah. you're, when you're going into an organization, what's the formula and what's the strategy that you found works? So we, you need to do three things. Number one is... Uh, we have come up with a 10-week sprint that we have now open-sourced uh, that hacks culture at scale in a legacy organization. 
we found that's absolutely critical. And what that means is, so the, the, you know, if you look at the Fortune 100 data, it's pretty clear that we've stumbled across the organizational model for the next 10 years. By the end of this decade, every organization in the world, be it a big company, a startup, a nonprofit, an impact project, even a government department, will be organized in this way because it's just better. Um, so uh, the number one thing is to uh, hack the mothership and change the culture to be more acceptable of this innovation at the edge, like Apple has done. So Apple's employees know there's crazy stuff happening at the edge, and they're just wait until there's a reveal and they get to know what it is. If you tell them too early, they'll instinctively try and fight it. Okay, um, uh, like for example, at Yahoo, one of the challenges I had with my incubator is the company kept publishing what I was doing, and all the other teams at Yahoo were like, "Hey, we're doing that. Why does he get to do that?" Da 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 da, and just sets up a horrible internal politics. Have to keep it stealth. Okay. Uh, the second is do disruptive things away from uh, away from the core organization. If uh, incremental innovation is best at the core, disruptive innovation at the edge. And so we've created a ten-week process called an EXO Sprint that hacks culture at scale in a big company. We piloted it with Procter and Gamble. Uh, we've now done it sixty times with big companies. Average return on investment is like 70 times running mm -hmm. for running because the, the juices up the internal metabolism of the company and, and allows them to accept disruptive innovation. So that cultural tolerance now sits so that if something, somebody does something wacky at the edge, they don't shut it down by default. They kind of go, wow, that's interesting. And they let that it happen. That permeates every level of the organization. We found that it does. And yeah. I can describe why it works and how it works if you want. Um, but we found we found a way of hacking culture at scale in a legacy organization and 60 times in, we're pretty good that it's a true cookie-cutter process. We published a second book called Exponential Transformation, which is literally a handbook on how do you do it, how do you form the teams, what weekly assignments you give them. And it's a 10-week elapsed process. And the key metric we found is that we're able to move leadership culture management thinking three years ahead in that 10 weeks. Uh, so that's pretty cool. Um, we found that when somebody had a great idea inside a company, beforehand they might get funded 5 or 10% of the time. After you run this process, they're getting funded 95% of the time because the company culturally knows now that disruptive stuff at the edge needs to be embraced and not shut down. So it, it makes sense to me that, um, so I, I'm, I'm curious as to how this works because if you move the leadership along, that makes sense. But I feel like in a, especially in a Fortune 500, if you've ever worked in one or worked with one, Tons. I mean, um, the, the issue is not always the leadership either. No, like it's, it's never the it's, it's, it's all the mid market, every, mid, every middle middle level management. Yeah, yeah. You do not want to change. It does something for thirty years. Yes. So I'll tell you how it works. How we do it. What we do is uh, we work in in a, in P and G. We work with a division that was seven thousand people. Okay. Pretty big division. Yeah. Okay. Arms, yeah. Um. Uh, uh. In fact, it was shared services, which is the back end IT provisioning. So that's pretty conservative law, yeah. etc. So we. The, we work with them, and what we do is we get the top 10% of senior management into a workshop at the beginning, um, the top two layers of senior management, and we do a singularity-style shock-and-all, blow-your-mind workshop, which is meant to freak them out the completely, hey, here's the future, and it's going to mess with you. For example, a huge amount of R&D at P&G goes into what shape should the shampoo bottle be to be attractive to her, a potential shopper, or what color should the Pampers box be, right? To be attractive. Well, my wife has a diaper subscription to Amazon and doesn't care about the box anymore. Do you realize this? And you're about to be disrupted around yeah. this. So the subscription type models are completely disrupting the traditional merchandising model. Um, 
etc. Just on a totally wacky idea, there's a biotech breakthrough where you kind of spray certain bacteria into your armpits and you never need to use soap again. Because the soap actually takes off a lot of the good bacteria that sits yeah. on your skin. It's not great for you. So you use the spray and you never need deodorant and you never need soap. So that's kind of disruptive. And do you know about this? At least track it, right? Or Soylent, yeah. uh, which is totally nuts, et cetera. So we kind of give them that. Then we kind of leave them alone because the legacy management is not set up for the future thinking. What we do is take 25 young leaders, future lieutenants of the business, and they actually do the work. So it's kind of a coaching model. And they divide it into four teams. Two teams that sit at the edge of the company going, what crazy idea can we launch to to blow this company open 10x. The second two teams sit inside the mothership and think about what would I do to uh, change the mothership? Which of the EXO attributes would I implement internally? They do two five-week innovation cycles. They report at the end. And we've pre-allocated half a million in idea. If senior management likes the ideas, they fund them. Now, what happens is, the reason it works is when we've kind of shown the senior management the future, when the new ideas come, they don't attack them. So that's number one. Number two, when those young leaders go back to their day jobs after the 10 weeks is over, which takes about 30% of their time during the 10 weeks, if not full-time, because it's hard to do that. But it takes you know somewhere about a third of their time. When they go back to their day jobs, they infect everybody else with this thinking. So we're essentially introducing a viral meme into a company. And the best summary of what we've learned how to do in the same way that, say, Tony Robbins or Landmark Education or neurolinguistic Programming is able to make a subconscious state change in an individual, we've learned how to do that at an organizational level. And after 60 times, we're pretty good at it. Okay, so that makes sense to me. Um, just before we keep going, I just want to actually touch or ask a question about when when these companies create these um, these little units at the edge and they're innovating and disrupting. Uh, I'm going to figure out the rest of the strategy as well, but is is it not easier just to buy companies and 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 put them at the edge? You could, um, but the problem is the company can't resist getting its sticky little fingers on it. So I've experienced this before too. Of course you so, have. Yeah. So my last company was acquired by a, a large company, and we were supposed to be one of these disruptive units. Yes. And then an enterprise team um, started developing a product that was competing directly with ours and trying to take it to market. And we were fighting for resources and then neither product actually worked out. Yeah. So I want to take a second and thank Indeed. They're a huge sponsor of the Success Story podcast. And as business leaders, we're all driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. It's to match with Indeed. Now, if you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. You need to ditch the busy work. You need to use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster all the tools you need are in one spot. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clary. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need indeed. This episode is brought to you by NetSuite. Now, as a business owner, I always remember when my company hits a growth spurt. It's great 
but then you realize that things start to break. Things are taking three times as long. Manual processes start to bury your team in paperwork and admin, and you really don't have one reliable source of data or truth to understand how healthy your business is. If this sounds familiar, you have to know three numbers. 37,000, that's how many businesses have upgraded to NetSuite, the number one cloud financial system. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years streamlining accounting, inventory, HR, and more for growing companies. And one, because your business truly is one of a kind, NetSuite gives you customized solutions so you can manage everything about your business in one place, from inventory to invoicing, one powerfully efficient system. I love having all of my data in one spot. NetSuite allows me to do that. It gives me the big picture so I can make smarter decisions. And they turn complex financials into understandable, actionable insights. Right now, you can get NetSuite's popular KPI checklist for free to help improve your business. It's designed to help you boost performance across key areas of your business. Go to netsuite.com slash Clary to download the checklist and see how one complete system can transform your growth. That's netsuite.com slash Clary. Get more control in your business with NetSuite. Just a quick question. Have you ever had one of those oh no moments when you realize that you accidentally deleted a huge file or worse, your whole computer dies. I know I have. It's happened to me a lot, but don't sweat it. The sponsor of today's episode, Backblaze, they have your back. It is unlimited backups for all your Macs, your PCs, or even your whole company, and it's really affordable, under 100 bucks a year. If you're running a business, they take the stress out of protecting everyone's data. If you need more bells and whistles for compliance, so on and so forth, they have enterprise options too. Honestly, losing data sucks, but Backblaze makes getting it back easy. They have restored billions of files. They offer tons of restore options, including rapid recovery in an event of data loss or ransomware. And you can access your backed up data from everywhere and anywhere in the world using their web app, iOS, or Android apps. It's been recommended by the New York Times, Inc., Macworld, PC World, LifeWire, Wired, Tom's Guide, 9to5Mac, and tons more. And best, you can try it fully featured with no risk at backblaze.com slash story. They set up that link for all Success Story podcast listeners. That is a no-risk free trial at backblaze.com slash story. Seriously, back up your stuff. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information. But Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success.
I want to thank Belay for sponsoring today's episode. They provide solutions that all of us need. They help us get back more of our time because time is the most precious resource. A lot of you listening are business leaders, entrepreneurs. You know that if you spend your time incorrectly, it can make or break your business, your personal, professional relationships. It can completely sidetrack you and stop you from reaching your goals. So I'm going to ask you, are you protecting your time? How much of your day is eaten up by tasks that could have been done by someone else? Wouldn't you rather spend your time on things that truly matter? The answer should be yes, because you have to, to move the needle on whatever it is you're trying to build. That's where Belay comes in. They are the nation's largest pool of exceptional US-based talent. Belay offers flexible staffing solutions to free you up. Need a virtual assistant to conquer those pesky administrative tasks or maybe an accounting professional to really keep your finances in order? Belay can help with all that and way more. Their personalized matching process saves you the headache of hiring by finding the perfect match for your needs in as little as a week. Focus on what matters the most with the help from Belay. Text SUCCESS, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to learn more and get started. Uh, It's so interesting because I've seen a lot of companies try and acquire and like create these little innovation labs within their own organizations. But I've seen firsthand, I've experienced it not working because of everything you just mentioned. It it never, ever, 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 ever works. I've I've never seen disruptive innovation occur in the the mothership. Coca-Cola a few years ago did something really amazing. They said... We're going to do disruptive innovation transparently in the mother organization. I was like, wow, that's super courageous. That failed miserably, but at least they tried. Mm-hmm. Right? The only way I've seen it work is, is the Apple model. Put it, Take your crazy people to the edge. Keep them stealth. Tell the rest of the company. We're not telling you what's out there. But when we disrupt, when we launch it, it's going to be really freaking cool. Yeah. Right. And then launch it off the edge. So that requires a different form of leadership than all this. The, the, um, the consensus-driven leadership that exists in both most big companies doesn't apply to this model. So you have to operate in a totally different way. And a large company, here's the simple reason why. Every large organization in the world is geared for efficiency and optimized for um, predictability. They want to deliver the same bar of soap in a million locations if you're Unilever. And when you come in from the side, it's like a Roman army marching along in a phalanx formation with shields and spears yeah. chunking along. You come in from the side, it doesn't matter how nice you are, you're going to get speared. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And and what you experienced is you bring in this different animal and the company can't handle it. And I can give a couple of great little anecdotes because I've seen this before in telcos and banks and stuff, but I joined Yahoo and um, I, I extracted five promises from Jerry Yang and senior management to join. I want to be offsite. I want to be able to go off brand. I want to be free of HR and legal rules. I want to be able to build on my own technology stack, not bound by the corporate stuff. Ruby on Rails, we should be building because we're trying to be a startup type structure. And the last one was I want to be able to give equity in an idea to somebody who had a great idea. Otherwise, they could just do a startup, especially in Silicon Valley. We got all sign off on all of these. Within two months, all five shredded beyond any possible recognition that they ever existed. I go to these the the HR people and I go, hey, I want to give stock options to somebody who has a great idea. And they're like, we can't do that. We're a public company with a regulated stock option plan. No freaking way. I'm like, but I got signed up from Jerry Yang. And they go, yeah, you tell Jerry to come down and run the stock option plan and deal with the regulators. No, we're not doing it. I'm like, and like there's literally rippled across all of these and it was gone. Um uh my favorite one was about uh, I did get a separate office away from the mothership, but about I'm sitting in the empty office with my developers 
and about uh, a couple of days in, the doorbell rings. Um, go outside, there's a huge furniture truck. And, and the guy's, I'm here to deliver the furniture. I'm like, what for? We didn't order any. He goes, I'm from facilities. And I'm here to deliver the furniture. We open up the back, and it's literally full of cubicles and corporate oh color God. couches. It's like yeah. Dilbert hell. And my guys are like, uh, <laughs> the hell with that. If that comes in, we're out of here. Yeah. We want ping pong table and foosballs and beanbags. Right? Not this shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so the guy's like, hey, my KPI is to deliver and furnish a new office within 48 hours of it opening. And I'm coming in. Yeah. I'm like, uh, uh, so I'm like, okay, hold on a second. I, I'm on the phone with his boss and his boss's boss. I'm on the phone with my boss and my boss. Well, takes half a day. Finally, I'm able to get rid of the guy who's grumbling. He doesn't want his bonus dinged because yeah. he actually did show up, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, phew, that was like, you know, t- close. But we managed to get rid of him. My guys didn't quit in protest and all, all good. But it shows you. And it you, shows you what. You, you know what this is like. Every yeah. Everybody in a big company knows this story a thousand times over. Okay. Here's the crazy part. Two weeks later. Doorbell rings. Same guy, same truck, same furniture. And I'm like, dude, I thought we went through this. He goes, yeah, except my manager changed. Notice you didn't have the tick box, and I'm now ordered to bring the furniture, and I have to start all over again, right? Now, what's key here, what's really key here is he's not being a bad guy. No. He's just doing what his KPIs and his job description, uh, the efficiency of the company operating on a certain metabolism is geared to do that thing. When you try and do something radically different, it can't cope. It just can't cope. It'll spit it out. And so either one of two things happens with a disruptive idea in a big company. Either it gets diluted so much that all the disruptive elements are gone and you can't, it's vanilla and and mother's milk at that point and up applehood and mother pie and it's just part of the big company or it gets spit out and rejected and you lose it either way. One of the two things happens, large organizations cannot handle this. Governments handle it even worse. Right? institutions have it handle it even worse and this is the nature of the world that we have to solve and if we don't solve that we're we are going to break the world why do you think we're going to break the world what does that mean well all the institutions by which we run the world were set up in the middle ages understood right okay. eo wilson the noted biologist said um we are we have paleolithic emotions we have medieval institutions and we have godlike technology and there's a big impedance mismatch between those three. Of course. A uh, simple example is uh, you education was set up a few hundred years ago, designed to take a young child, train them through the early 20s to be ready for the existing job market. Well, the world is changing so fast, we have no idea what a job looks like in five years. What are we teaching them? And you try and update education and watch the fun, watch the immune system react. You'll get viciously butchered uh, by the existing system. Teachers unions book publishers, regulatory people, et cetera, et cetera. They can't cope. And it's the same in every major institution. Journalism, the business model is broken. Democracy is even breaking because the metabolism of a democracy was set up at a time when information moved really slowly and was very scarce. If you were in Washington, D.C., you had no idea what was happening in California. The speed of a horse was the fastest. So we had Congress meets occasionally to give people time to literally ride across the country and say, here's what my people are thinking. And so you could design a structure where things changed over like decades and slowly you bring the population along, make broad changes like women's rights or abolishing slavery or civil rights movements or whatever. Well, the world is changing every few months right now. We don't have time for that. We have an abundance of information, gets misused, misinterpreted, faked, and the metabolism of democracy 
does not work with the speed of change in the world today. So every major democracy in the world is broken. I'm from India originally, broken. Brazil, broken. The UK broke three years ago. US breaking in front of our eyes right now. Right? So this is, a, this is true. I've not been able to find a single institution. There's about 50 major institutions like healthcare systems, legal systems. I've not been able to find a single one that survives this in the same way that I don't believe a single big operating company will survive this future. That's very bleak. Uh, no, 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 no. You have to, you, you have, you can look at it. Bleak, I'm not saying have... that it's incorrect. I'm just saying that it, well, because all I'm thinking in my head is how are you going to go into the U.S. government and change the way that their you, organization works? You, you don't, you don't do it that way. Okay. What you do. So uh, 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 let me address the bleak question versus the thing. Because it looks, you, we always relate to that as the loss of an old structure is bad. Okay. What you remember, have to remember is on the other side of that disruption is massive opportunity. Just unbelievable opportunity. And what's happening in the world at the highest like metaphysical level is we're going through a transformation and an inflection point of running the world from scarcity to running the world to, from abundance. Our entire history, like take business. For 10,000 years, if you didn't have scarcity, you, you didn't have a business. And EXOs are actually the inflection point for the first time in history of people finding business models around abundance. Airbnb is tapping into an abundance of extra bedrooms lying around, Uber, an extra bunch of extra cars lying around, Waze, extra GPS capacity, whatever. And we're finding business models around abundance. So that's this inflection point happening. But almost every government policy is based on scarcity. Every industry is based on scarcity. Uh, energy, which has been scarce for the entirety of human history, is about to become abundant. And we can't cope, basically. So we need to update all of our things. But the future is incredibly magical. We just have to figure out how to get there. Um, so let's talk about the last two last two uh, levers that you pull in organizations. Because yeah. we talked about the culture, and then I think that was like the main, that was the first piece. Yeah, so there's three pieces you yeah. do to, for, to transfer. Number one, we offer free training on the EXO model yeah. called EXO Foundations. We, we basically say to the companies, have all your employees go through this two, three hour video training, and that gives lays the vocabulary down, okay? Number two, run a sprint to change the culture and allow disruptive innovation to occur culturally in the organization. That's number two. And the third is you take your crazy people to the edge and spin off crazy ideas off the edge. Those three uh, done in, in sequence will solve the big company and turn the metabolism around and as I said, we've done it 60 times. We've now got a very and tried and true so, so talk to me about all these Gutenberg moments and all the technology that we're seeing. So where does that play into what you're doing with organizations? That's the, that's the trigger point that's driving this disruption. Okay, So just take, let's use autonomous cars. Google comes out with the autonomous car in 2008. Um, and the entire car industry looks at that and says, ah, cute research project. There's like $200,000 a car for all the sensors and GPS and LIDAR and radar and all that stuff. No way you're commercializing that. Two years later, it's $100,000 a car. Two years later, it's $50,000 a car because it's dropping exponentially. And the entire car industry still goes, ah, 50K, who's going to spend 50K for all the sensors? Then it drops from 50 to 25 to 12 to 6 to 3. It is now below $1,000 a car for all of the sensors to do an autonomous car. And now everybody's freaking out, right? The ones that jumped on it early, Waymo, Elon Musk, are way, way, way ahead of the market now to a extent that it's going to be very hard for the market to catch up. That's, the, that's, the, uh, that's happening in industry after industry, be it healthcare, be it education, be it whatever. 
education systems, all our universities or education systems are push-based. Get a bunch of kids in a classroom, try and cram algebra into them. Right? They're mostly thinking about lunch. But just the simplest idea, how much of your university degree did you really work use when you got into the workplace? And the answer is like near zero. Okay. What we're moving to subconsciously without realizing it is a pull-based learning model. When you take on a new job or a role, you pull down the skills needed to run that uh, function and do that function. And that's how we'll be running the world going forward. Well, that's very different from our old push-based systems and how do we deal with that? So those are the kinds of tensions that are occurring in this massive inflection point. The 20 Gutenberg moments are the, are the tsunami that's washing away these old structures and forcing us to do things in a new way. Um, okay, so then I, I, then I want to go back to the point you made about there's huge opportunity. Yes. So what does that opportunity look like? Because when, I, when you originally said we're going to break things or things are breaking, democracy is breaking, and you look at all the, other, all the other countries in the world where democracy has broke to some extent, yeah. I don't see today in 2022 a net positive because of that. Yet. So what? So how do we? Yeah, okay, so got that. So so let's follow the model. Yeah. Existing system, uh, you it's starting to break, and then you see uh, an innovation at the edge. Okay. What happens? You don't try and bring the innovation in the middle. You let that become the new gravity center over time. And let me give you an example. Our monetary systems are breaking. The reason is we created a debt-based structure. We floated off the gold standard in the '70s, and we grew the economy with debt. Okay. Um. And that structure for, didn't realize that technology was deflationary because up to the entire history of humanity, advanced technologies cost more. So you could grow the economy with a debt-based environment. Well, since Moore's law showed up, uh, advanced technologies cost less because you apply computation and become solar panels become cheaper. Your TV is, is twice as functional a year later. Your MacBook is twice as functional. And that blows the, the debt-based monetary system. Now the only option is to print more money to keep up. That increases the debt. So now you're in a spiral. Yeah. Okay. How do you break that? You can't break it from inside the system. Uh, uh, right at the 2009 crisis, Bitcoin appears. Bitcoin is the innovation at the edge that operates a true uh, regulatory-free uh, monetary system that's deflationary. Okay. Uh, and nobody can hack it. Nobody can control it. Now people will try. They can't, etc. Jeff Booth, who's for me the the chief economist of the abundance age, um, uh, head of YPO Vancouver, yeah. wrote this book called The Price of Tomorrow. And he said, what Bitcoin gives you is money velocity without debt. All our economies and monetary systems gave you money velocity by increasing debt. And now we have money velocity without debt. And that's the new model. It'll shift to that over time. It's inevitable. Now, you you can go elegantly, you can go kicking and screaming, but you will go because the existing system can't sustain. So that's what you see in various countries. So you see some countries that are uh, banning it while El Salvador is adopting, adopting it, it, embracing it. You see some countries. It's, it's interesting when you mentioned, uh, you know, the, the response because like the immune response to it because it's talk it, to any banker yeah. about Bitcoin and watch them get hives, right? But now you have to, people doing like their own digital currency. Exactly. So because we have for the first to, time yeah. innovation in, in currencies, which we haven't had for hundreds and thousands of years. Right? Or, it's all, or if you did, it was always state-backed state, state backed innovation. Now it goes to the individual. So everybody's like, I can launch blockchain. Let's go for it. Now, they may not all work, but at least you have innovation there. We have right now a Cambrian explosion. Uh, I think the, when I looked at Coinbase, uh, sorry, 
coin market cap. There are 19,100 tokens listed on there. So all of them doing fascinating innovation in different ways. And when you when you think, because I, I look at this and I see some companies that are are building like like these 19,000 companies or the Airbnbs or the Ubers, but when you look at um, disrupting a, a government, what's the time frame on that? Because you still, like, is it in our lifetime or not? Because when I look at like, okay, so we're trying to move towards decentralized currency and that's going to be the, the best possible solution for society. You, you can't even have someone's grandmother who can purchase it right now without help. It's Agreed. getting there, but we're not there yet. No, so. no, I can't even, I've been navigating this NFT world and these discord channels, et cetera, right? et cetera. I, I'm still trying to get my head around a smart contract. It's a very, very different. There's some bylaw. You have to be under 25 years old to use the blockchain. Right? So that's an issue. That's a huge issue. Uh, but here's what happens. We look at a bunch of different things that lead to disruption. Peter calls them the six Ds. You digitize is very disruptive for a while, deceptive, then it becomes disruptive, then it dematerializes, democratizes, et cetera, and you have this curve. The key to going from deceptive to disruptive and really making a big difference in what happens turns out to be usability. So Steve Jobs made the smartphone usable. Right? Those old Nokias were not that, they were clunky, they weren't that, he made it usable, boom, we had exponential disruption. Um, Bitcoin is not quite usable yet. Coinbase has allowed you to purchase Bitcoin but not do much else with it. Um, these other blockchains are trying for the, somebody at some point will crack the usability and when they do, then things take off in a massive way. I just find it interesting because if you have regulatory come down on this, like even if you think of things that were uh, like like marijuana, for example, yeah, like if if there is an if there's some regulatory immune, immune response to it or anti-immune response to it, um, and they put it into law, yeah, then you're you're stuck for fifty years. Are you not? You are, but um, yes, you are. It's a huge issue. And what's happening is the, the they've tried to regulate these cryptocurrencies, but it turns out you can't. Um, and I'll give you a simple example. This is the this is the thing that tipped well, it talk over. Talk to me about China, because China did that, and then yeah. you saw all the miners move out of China. So sure, but then you kill all innovation, right? You're basically centralized, top-down uh, autocracy, which, and which, and, they which are. is which is yeah. they are, and yeah. now they're having cracked down mass more and more, and they'll have to keep cracking down more and more. No autocracy has ever succeeded. Right? Now, no democracy has ever succeeded either, but. As Winston Churchill said, democracy is the worst form of government, except for everything else, right? At least you have some modicum of freedom, et cetera, et cetera. The challenge we have in the U.S. is that a democracy relies on an educated population, and the population is, is not educated in terms of what's actually happening in the world. Well, because, again, it brings us back to the information. It does. It, it, it breaks it. It. Yeah. it breaks it. So now what's the future? I think the future is micro-democracies, city-states, rather than nation-states. Because we run nation-states because they have... They were successful because you could have um, lots of natural resources under one boundary. You had critical mass in multiple industries and that big uh, thing, just like a big company. Uh, but now the future is, if you look at the pandemic, the most successful responders to the pandemics were small countries. Big countries were uni uniformly a mess. Okay? Russia, China, uh, India, US, Brazil, mess. All the small countries, because they have homogeneity and move quickly, they can get their populations to adapt. People listen. They have a higher trust levels. Boom, hugely successful in little countries. In the same way, you don't need access to resources today. If you have solar energy, vertical farming, you don't need a national grid. 
You don't need centralized energy pipelines and, and supply chains, et cetera. So therefore, a city-state is, we think, is the future of, uh, of organizational model for society. And um, that's where we're saying, when you think about, when I think about Trump or Brexit, it's not about left versus right. It's urban versus rural. Really, that's the, that's the fight. Well, it, it always is, right? That's the issue. Always and then is. you have like the coastal cities that the, the left is pandering to. And then middle America is wondering where the hell they're being you know, yep. included in this. And then it's no longer it's no longer political ideology. It's just why are you focusing on people that aren't going to help me? Yeah, but here's the incredible point, And this is why we tend to be so optimistic. You throw in solar energy and um, a water filter that can extract clean water out of the air and healthcare that can be looked up on the internet, and education that can be looked up on the internet, you can be self-sufficient anywhere. You don't need the centralized government in any way, shape, or form. So you can now really be self-sufficient. You're not dependent on this. There's a huge irony in that the red states take more from the central government than the blue states. Is that true? <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> they get massively more benefits to the red states than the blue states. The blue states tend to be a tax... Uh, negative tax income they they get they give in more and they take it out less and the red states tend to, to get more subsidies and give more give less. which is but ironic because it's supposed to be the other way around yeah that's <laughs> just the u.s and it's you know all of the magic of the i live in florida in miami these days and you know there's a whole phrase in the news called florida man right yeah florida man tries to kiss alligator yeah right like it's just yeah. there's, there's a level of in madness that maybe comes with the heat and humidity and people do just the most ridiculous things against their self-interest when we saw that with the masks and so on. I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, HubSpot. Now, as a leader, you're always on the lookout for more ways to arm yourself with knowledge, the books, the seminars, and most importantly, the podcasts that help you make the best possible decision for you, your company, your customers. Because when you know more, you can apply more and you can grow. With HubSpot's CRM platform, you can store, track, manage, and report on all the tasks and activities that make up your relationships with customers. With a bird's eye view over all your customer interactions, HubSpot empowers your decision-making like never before, so you can give your business and your customers all the good you've got. Learn how to make your business grow better at HubSpot.com. Um, so let's let's talk about starting organizations. Yes. So you're an entrepreneur you want to start something yeah what's your advice for somebody starting something is there a way that they should look at a absolutely yeah. so uh, before we go to that let me just finish one big thing about sure. yeah. if if you apply this model in big organizations it really goddamn works i'll give you an easy example amazon uh, has a policy inside amazon called uh the institutional yes because they realize the immune system problem in big companies they realize this really easy to say no so they created a policy where if you have an idea inside Amazon, you come to me, I'm not allowed to say no. My default answer has to be yes to your idea. If I want to say no, I have to write a two-page thesis on why it's a bad idea and post it publicly on an internet for ridicule and shame. So they caused friction. They increased the friction of saying no, meaning it's much easier for me to go, yeah, yeah. go do it. You'll fail downstream. I don't believe in your idea, but go for it. Yeah. Right. One of the results which is the attitude this, you have to have. Which is the attitude you have yeah. to have. Yeah. Which one of the results of this policy was Amazon Web Services. Wow. Nothing to do with their core strategy. Nobody could figure out how to say no to it. Now one of the most successful products of all time that delivers 75% of Amazon's profits just by stopping the immune system and mitigating it somewhat. I'll give you one last example that's very powerful in the corporate world. Marriott Hotels is worth about $50 billion today. 
If Marriott had launched TripAdvisor, Booking.com, Airbnb, their market cap would be $250 billion, 5x higher. The reason I use say this is all of those ideas were inside Marriott, but the immune system didn't let them out. So for fear of cannibalizing the existing business, they leave 5x market cap on the table. Okay. So just let that register for a bit. Okay. So that's why we're pretty clear that you have to be organized in this way. So then how do you start an EXL? Yeah. We have a very clear and very simple model for how to build, and it's now being followed by tens of thousands of entrepreneurs around the world. Number one, most importantly, what is your massive transformative purpose? What fundamental problem are you trying to solve? The founders of Waze are trying to solve traffic. Google's MTP is organize the world's information. Uber is everybody's private driver. It's a single statement that kind of encompasses, here's the challenge, here's what we're trying to solve, here's what we're about. Um, uh, uh, Paul Pullman at Unilever read the book, ordered every brand in Unilever to have an MTP. And after three, four years, the five most profitable brands are the ones that have adopted it the most. So we can see the model bite. Um, uh, what that does is gives you a clear statement to the outside world. Here's what we are about. Here's the fundamental problem that we're trying to solve. A community then appears around that. Google organizer, Uber as everybody's so, private driver. To point yeah. on that, can you help me understand for somebody's listening to this, they're like, well, what's the difference? I, I, I know I have to have a vision and a mission and these are all things that I've heard other people say that I should have as a, as a founder. What's the difference? The vision could be, I want to see a MacBook in everybody's home. Okay, that's the vision. It doesn't tell you what problem you're trying to solve. I understand. Okay. The MTP is think differently, right? Um, uh, Uber can say, we want to be in 5 million cars, have 5 million drivers, but that's the vision. But the problem they're trying to solve is everybody in the world should have a private driver. So it's a, it's the problem statement that you're getting attached to, not the outcome solution. Understood. You get attached to the problem. You have a leading okay. indicator there. That you have to Boom. <laughs> uh, MTP, cure cancer. Yeah. Right. And it's not that I'm going to cure cancer. It's like I'm. It's a call to action. We are collectively going to cure cancer. Now, so that's number one and most important. Every EXO we ever saw has an MTP. So simply, we'll be hiring now in the future based on the organizational MTP and your MTP. A natural fit. We're starting to see that already, especially the younger generation is very purpose-driven, etc. Of course, once you hire, hire them, you have to figure out how to manage them, which is a whole other podcast uh, episode <laughs> that has passed my pay grade. But so number one, you do that. And then you join, create community around that MTP or join existing communities. If my MTP is cure cancer, lots of existing communities I can tap into. That's step two. Now you're part of a, a group, an ecosystem, a hive mind trying to go after that problem. Step three, find a founding team. Uh, we think four roles you need to have, a visionary, uh, a, a product guy, an engineer, and a, and a business guy. Those are the four. And they could be under over five people, four people, two people could have more multiple hats. Those four roles have to be covered. And you get a founding team excited about that MTP. Step four is what is the breakthrough idea or product or service you want to bring to market? This is really important because almost everybody in, in the history, when we're building a business, we go, wow, look at this Bluetooth technology. Let me see how I can push this out into the world. Okay, so they're trying to push system to succeed. They found a great technology. They think it solved lots of problems. Uh, EXOs tend to be problem-driven, and then you find a breakthrough solution that matches. And then you're agnostic. Like Elon Musk, his MTP is go to Mars. And whatever it takes to get to Mars, that's the technology he'll use. He's not found, oh, we have 3D printed rocket engines. Let's use these and get these out into the world. So it's problem-driven, very key. 
Um, and that breakthrough idea or your product or service that you bring to market has to be minimum 10x better than the status quo in the marketplace. Right? If it's 10% better, the market will ignore it. If it's 10 times better, the market cannot ignore it. How do you, how do you measure that? Um, give you an example. A typical combustion engine car has 2,000 moving parts in a drivetrain. The Tesla has 70. Boom. Um, my listings per employee at Airbnb uh, is 100 times more than the, the uh, rooms per employee in Marriott. Uh, so there's a bunch of ways, you can, metrics right. you can apply per industry, per vertical to decide. My healthcare, my cancer detection device can do cancer detection 10x better than the mammogram, et cetera. So there's easy metrics in a, depending on the problem statement. Now you have your product and service, then you, do your, then you follow the lean startup methodology, MVP, uh, uh, lean startup canvas, business model canvas. Once you've got that going and you're iterating, then you add in the other EXO attributes, dashboards, OKRs, uh, lean startup thinking, um, decentralized org structures, eventually leading to DAOs, um, et cetera, et cetera, build uh, algorithms into the product, et cetera, and you finish the tick list. And then you keep running that that and, model. And like the most the most critical thing in a startup, which is finding that PMF, is so much easier now because you haven't tied yourself to that one product. Exactly. That one product that you think is a good idea. That's right. You're just trying to solve the problem. You want to solve the problem. Very smart. Very smart. And 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 talk to me about companies that are doing this well, so as people can look to examples outside of like the big ones, but like like newer ones that are starting. Um, there's almost every startup today is following this methodology one way or the other. Soylent is a great one, yeah. right? Um, um, solve nutrition, not can I have a better fruit product. Uh, solve nutrition in some way, shape, or form. Uh, there's the, the easy. Ted is a good one. Let, let me use Ted as a little case study. I'll give you two case studies. Yeah. Ted is uh, when uh, Ted has been around for a while. Thousand people a year are going to Monterey in California. Chris Anderson takes it over. He does three things: establishes an MTP, ideas worth spreading. Right? Then he gives all puts all the TED talks on YouTube for free, leveraging rich media. Um, then he allows anybody in the TED community to go create a TEDx event. And boom, in 10 years, he's created a global media brand. Uh, nobody's ever created a global media brand uh, that fast before. And his cost of doing this was near zero. So you can take an established environment, blow it open to a global level at near zero cost. So that's a good example of an EXO. Okay, I'll give you a slightly more newer model. There's a, if, you, if I ask you used cars, how would you disrupt the used car market? Um, it's not that obvious. You might have a better app. Maybe I can deliver the cars to somebody. Maybe I insure the car that it's give a better warranty so people have used cars. You have Carvana and a few other models that are popping up. Okay, Chinese company called Guazi says, okay, we're going to attack the used car market. They show up at somebody who wants to sell a car. They take 250 data points, photo, video, audio. They have an audio of the engine. The machine learning algorithm listens to the engine perturbations and is able to detect if there's any issues with the engine by the sound. Pretty easy. Over millions of engines, sounds, they can figure that out pretty quickly. And it gives them a real-time, on-the-spot price of that, what they what the engine thinks, the AI thinks the car is worth. If it's worth $10,000, I, I offer you $9,000, 10% less. And then I will go beef it up and try and set up for $11,000. Okay? That's it. That's their model. Um, but that real-time pricing is very attractive to the seller. The buyer also knows that they've got this, they've done all the research and, and due diligence, and they're not, the margin is not that higher. They're not trying to sell 50% more, yeah. they're 10% more. Uh, so the buyer goes, I have good confidence in this. The company is seven years old. 
They've captured 80% of the used car market in China. Wow. Two, wow. two million cars a month. Okay. And I will suggest to you that anybody in the real world, anybody in the car used car industry cannot get their heads around that statistic. Well, because 80% market wrong. share in seven years, which is insane, which is nuts. absolutely nuts. But so the problem they were solving is friction. Yep. It's a friction problem that they solve for. I'm, well, I'm just trying to read into like why they captured 80% in seven years because everything they're doing is good, but 80% in seven years is absolutely insane. It's, it's, yeah. it's impossible. Yeah. Right? People will say you're nuts. You're never going to do that. This is an enormous challenge with EXOs because you get outcomes that people literally can't believe. So you can't tell people that you're going to do that because they won't believe An it. investor will look like, yeah. yeah, you have like if, heads, if, yeah. Just look at the, think about this. I did this thought experiment. Chris Anderson, if you would launch TEDx in a traditional way, you'd say, all right, we're going to do four TEDx events this month. The next month, we're going to do four more. We'll do eight. Following month, we'll do four more. We'll do 12. Maybe the following quarter, we'll do 20, and then 30 a month, and then 50 a month. That's already crazy, 50 TEDx events a month, 100 a month, 200 a month. Okay, over a period of three, four years, we'll get to maybe 1,000 TEDx events expensive to do a all month, yeah. etc. Now, who's yeah. going to do all this? Who's going to set it all up, etc.? Now, if you told the team you're going to do, instead of what he did was, here's the MTP, ideas were spreading. Here's the rules on how you set up a TEDx event. You can go follow the rules, self-provision from the mothership, the signage and the rules, et cetera, off you go. In five years, they, they ran 20,000 TEDx events. Now, if you went to an investor and said, we're going to run 20,000, yeah. they'll go, I'm sorry, you're nuts. If you told the employees on the team you're going to run 20,000, they'll quit. They'll just go, you're barking mad. You're, I'm out of here. I don't need to be <laughs> dealing that with that kind of stress, right? So it's really tough because if you actually lay out the projections, you will lose everybody. Yeah. If you try and uh, be reasonable, you'll leave so much on the table. And let me give you the best example of an EXO entrepreneur we have today, which is Elon Musk. His methodology is really, really simple. He looks at a technology that's growing exponentially, solar energy, battery technology, neural implants, whatever. Where will that technology be in 10 years on a doubling pattern? And then let's build an EXO to intercept that curve over a 10-year period. That's it. Just rinse and repeat. So he bu builds a community-based environment around a Tesla, around SpaceX, et cetera. Because he has his MTP looks, for looks, all those. Looks yeah. that he's got an MTP, go to Mars, yeah. solve energy, yeah. uh, solve uh, solar energy, and solve neural links, whatever. Yeah. Um, so... You set your MTP, you look at the technologies that are going to give you 10x or doubling patterns over that period of time. Have the courage to go, okay, that's where it's going to be in 10 years. For example, when he launched the Tesla in 2010, battery prices were X. By the end of the decade, lithium-ion batteries are 90% cheaper than 10 years ago. Okay, Now, the car industry does not dare make that projection. And no car executive will go, those batteries are going to be 90% less. They can't get their heads around exponential thinking. So entrepreneurs today have all the advantages. Big companies have all the disadvantages. The one thing that I thought you touched on a few times that was interesting that I've seen a lot of the things you're speaking about in real life. I've seen a lot of these companies uh, deploy like the XO model. Yeah. But the one thing that I haven't seen yet is DAOs and decentralized organizations. So... That's a very interesting. Uh, it's a very interesting idea. Yes. How does it work in practical? Because even even Elons of the world are not DAOs. Yes. So uh, DAOs are non-trivial. It's like a big co-op running on a blockchain, and co-ops have governance issues, right? 
the challenge with DAOs, the, the benefit is you can scale very, very fast. You, mm -hmm. you set a set of rules. TEDx is essentially a DAO type structure. Somebody can self-select, agree to a set of rules, come in, take the kit, go build an EA, go build a TEDx event on their own with very no, little is that permission. Is that just a franchise though? You could call it a franchise. A franchise is an old model of doing this. Um, and the DAO is similar. Uh, Blockchain-based smart contracts yeah. govern the, do the governance, et cetera. The challenges with DAOs are, are exclusively have to do with governance. Nobody's ever seen, um, Austin Hill, who runs Blockstream, actually told, said it well for me. He said, think about a public company annual shareholders meeting yeah. with little grandmothers waving their chairs around going, what the hell are you doing? And it's like, it's, it's a shit show, excuse yeah. my language. And now scale that to internet scale. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a DAO governance. Right. So that's very, that very challenging. Very scary very when challenging. you're, trying to, you're so trying to actually build something. What you have to do is slowly migrate your community and do governance over time and bring them along with the journey. So they you build more and more governance into the community. And so we are building with EXO basically a decentralized McKinsey's where people can do consulting on the EXO model. They self-provision on training. They can go apply those tools to their local companies. We now have 17,000 consultants in 130 countries. You're starting to apply this. and we're Yeah, yeah so now we've, we've been steadily moving for four years to try and become a DAO. And it's taken us four years to get the community voting, the um, governance. Somebody does, a, we have a bad actor in the community. What do we do with him? Yeah. It's not good for us to say we look like the bad guy if we say the community should vote. What should we do with that person? Who's creating a competitive also thing? Because they're not used to it. They're, they're not used to it. Yeah. It takes a long time to you. So yeah. you have to train them uh, into getting involved. You have to figure out the right how many people should be on the governance committee to decide that. It's really, really. It's going to take us a long time to work out the governance models for DAOs. It's it's a non-trivial. Right now we've got the burst of irrational enthusiasm. Oh my God! Everything great in the world would be DAOs, and it's like the peak of the hype Gartner hype cycle. Yeah. Right. Uh, we'll go through the the chaos of the the un, uh, crazy expectations and people go, oh my God, this will never work. And then it'll just start happening as all technologies go through. But we're right now at the Pico hype cycle of DAOs. Um, with everything that you've worked on with XO, with Singularity, what are the problems that you're trying to solve right now? So what are you most focused on right now that you're concerned about that's keeping you up at night that you're seeing in organizations? Or 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 is it just... Is it just the, uh, you've just kept building out singularity, you've kept deploying this in companies, and you're just trying to scale that effort up? No, we've successfully applied EXO now in thousands of companies around the world. And people are- You know, it works and, and it's deployed yeah, well. It, and, it, yeah. It's working and people are taking up the model. Uh, for example, the Minister of Oceans in Mauritius called me up a couple of years ago and says, hey, I run my ministry on your book. I'm like, wow, that's you know, like cool. pretty thing now. <laughs> yeah. So we're we're starting to see the model bite in kind of all sorts of fascinating and unexpected places. And the model is it's just because it's better. Yeah. And and we and importantly, we didn't invent this, right? We analyzed 200 companies as the fastest growing company and just tagged what they were doing and created like a tick list for people. So there's no massive innovation. We just brought all of the attributes people are using into one place so they can and give them some prescriptive path as to how to apply these ideas, and people are following that model. So uh, so that's off to the races. What I'm fascinated by and most passionate about now is how do we transform society? Because it, we have to move society go small. from, well, you, <laughs> MTP, you have to yeah, go big, right? Yeah. Uh, and so my, my MTP is to transform civilization. Um, and it actually came from something my dad said. 
Um, I do this late night talk on metaphysics, philosophy, and the meaning of life. It's what I'm known for at Singularity. I did it for every class. Every year we do this. Because you come across all these technologies and you really ask the big questions. Synthetic biology, robotics, AI. What does it mean to be human? When I have a pig's heart inside me and all my organs are, my, my brain and memory are in my smartphone, etc. Right? At what point am I non-human, human? What is the purpose of life? What's the future of longevity? You really start, is there a God? You really start asking big questions. We found the students couldn't, couldn't apply themselves. So in the middle of every class uh, duration, we would do a late night French salon, alcohol mandatory on metaphysics, philosophy, and the meaning of life. And it's led me to this level of thinking that systematically, systemically, we have to change the world. If you look at civilizations in the past, the Romans, the Incas, the Mayans, they got to very sophisticated societies. Then they hit a boundary condition and they literally fell off a cliff. Suddenly collapsed every single one of them. No, no civilization has not gone through this process. You talk to the Yuval Hararis and the Neil Fergusons of the world, those conditions exist right now. So now how do we prevent that collapse in, a, in some systemic way and minimize the damage, the downside, not end up in several hundred years of the Dark Ages? We have two choices as humanity today, Mad Max or Star Trek. And our politicians are sending us straight down Mad Max. Um, but with all the technology abundance, we actually have the opportunity for a Star Trek world. And I'm interested in how do you make that pivot? So I did one of these late night sessions. My 90-year-old dad is at the session. Somebody goes, I really liked your talk, Fixing Civilization, where I talked about this immune system problem. My dad's go hand goes up. He goes, can I heckle? I'm like, yeah, of course. He goes, totally disagree with your talk. I'm like, oh, do you, do, do you not think we need to fix civilization? He goes, yeah, of course we do. But that's not the problem. The problem is not the fixing part. The problem is the civilization part. I was like, what do you mean? He goes, and he goes, we have not civilized the world. We've materialized the world. Now we have to do the work to civilize the world. And it's like wisdom of the elders, kaboom, yeah. right? And the whole audience, well, yep, yep, that's it. I lost all credibility. <laughs> and I was like, wow, he's right. We actually still have, you look at the political discourse in the world today or in the U.S. or in England or in the Russia-Ukraine war. Um, we are not, we are apes with more and more tools. We're apes with nuclear weapons. Yeah. We actually have to do the work now civilizing ourselves. And I think uh, it starts with um, this immune system problem. We get used to a particular pattern and we have to undo the old thinking and apply new thinking to embrace abundance of energy. Just that changes the world so fundamentally that none of our existing systems, institutions, business structures can deal with that simple fact. So we have to come up with new models, which is essentially how we think about this. The really great part is that Clay Christensen, with Innovator's Dilemma, identified and created a, a valid theory for disruptive change and disruptive innovation. We've now developed the tool set for applying disruptive change prescriptively. So we can do that in companies first, which is the easy part. As we learn how to apply that to institutions and to government, then we can navigate cleanly through this future to ending up in a Star Trek world rather than the Mad Max world. You think that the 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 ability to improve civilization or to civilize rather will be through large organization or is there a, a version well there's a version of what you're doing that has to be deployed for the individual not the organization so how do you do that so i'll go back to my city versus state issue we think it'll operate at a city level we think people will self-provision with these new tools and just go do it and over time that'll become the default model in the world so for example uh, Puerto Rico is deploying micro solar 
microgrids with solar energy, battery power, Philippines, the same thing. People are self-provisioning on these models. But you look at, in the gaming world, Axie Infinity, tens of thousands of families are pulling themselves out of poverty. It's the biggest, it's essentially wealth redistribution using a gamified environment. There's unbelievable reasons to be optimistic in the world. There's a really important part, a piece that Peter Diamandis identified in the book Abundance. In the back of our brains, we all have this little organ called an amygdala. And it's an evolutionary mechanism that we evolved in the plains of Africa. If if you hear a noise in the bushes, you run. Because bad news can kill you. Good news does not kill you. Right? If I miss some good news, I might miss some fruit that I could eat. I might miss uh, something like that. If I missed a piece of bad news, I could die. So we're actually 10 times more likely to pay attention to bad news versus good news because of the survival threat from when we evolved. Okay? Um, this is why all you hear in the news is bad news because you pay attention to bad news. This is why Fox News does very well. If you watch Fox News, you're going to die this week. Mm-hmm. If you're lucky, you'll last till next week, then you're going <laughs> to die next week. If you watch... Um, uh, uh, Peter calls CNN the crisis news network. When you can track every bank robbery in real time, high definition, stream to 20 devices, you think the world is going to go to hell. And you vote based on that fear, and then you end up with Trump or Brexit or whatever. The world is actually in an infinitely better place than we have ever seen it on all the data that you want to pick. Any data you want to pick, we're infinitely better. Uh, longevity, life cycles, maternal mortality, infant mortality, cost of telecommunications, transportation are all thousands of times cheaper than they were a while ago. I'll give you the simple statistic. Two, there's, a, there's a cost of what we mean by extreme poverty. It's on $2 a day of $2,011. If you get less than $2,000, that's called extreme poverty. So they use that parity equivalent across the ages. 200 years ago in 1894, um, 94%, so not 1820, 200 years, 1820, 94% of the world lived in extreme poverty, less than $2 equivalent a day at the time. 94% of the population. That has dropped steadily over the decades. We're down below 10% today. We're about 8.9% right now. You don't hear that in the news. It's good news. It doesn't sell. Right. Bill Gates predicts we will eradicate extreme poverty in this decade. You will just not see this in the news. What you hear in the news is, oh my God, autonomous car killed somebody. And so we have to overcome the natural evolutionary thing of our amygdala. It's incredibly and difficult. It's very difficult. Yeah. I didn't say it was going to be easy. <laughs> if it was going to be easy, people would have done it by now. But at least we have a really clear idea now of the problem space. We really yeah. understand the problem space. We mentioned the problem space is actually pretty easy. And the here's why I'm so optimistic. These new technologies for the first time in human history cost little, very little. Throughout history, advanced technologies always cost a lot. And only a big government or a corporate lab could afford to do R&D, launch new products and services. But look at today. Solar energy is cheap. Sensors are cheap. The blockchain is open source and free. For the first time in human history, um, entrepreneurs with no money can radically innovate. Vitalik Buterin, 18 years old, ignores his professors, half a trillion dollar industry. I will suggest to you that no banker in the world can get his head around that. I can't get my head around that, right? How does an 18-year-old create a half a trillion dollar ecosystem? That's just unbelievable. But that gives me unbelievable optimism because when you have thousands of entrepreneurs now innovating at low cost, magical things are going to happen and there's nothing anybody can do to stop it. And you'll have more of that good that will permeate 
yeah, I'll, I'll give you this last data point, which is, okay, I can create a new innovation. Will I do good things with it or bad things with it? Right? So when Craigslist and eBay emerged, there was a really interesting question. Will you have positive transactions or negative transactions? And for the first time, I can have an open system where I can do good or bad. I can easily on eBay post a picture of a MacBook, you send me a thousand bucks and I'm gone. Uh, I can post, I can mask my email address pretty easily. So anthropologists and sociologists have studied these systems. Right? What's the actual ratio yeah. of fraudulent versus constructive transactions on an eBay Craigslist? They've studied these systems in quite detailed, equally I can do either. Turns out the actual ratio across all of these systems is something like 8,000 to one. So on eBay, there are 8,000 positive transactions to each fraudulent transaction. Uh, that should apply to the general population. So that means if you have something like drones, 8,000 people will do something positive with it, and one person will do something negative. Now that means that one person is really easy to spot. And B, given the 8,000, we should just let anybody do whatever we want to do with drones. Except our regulatory, based on fear, says, oh my God, drones, you might use it for something bad ban all drones until we can slowly open that tap and it's taking us a very long time to take advantage of these new technologies. Um, I, I would even want to go down the path of figuring out some of those uh, those high-level esoteric conversations that you have in yeah. that group, but um, <laughs> I think that's like a... Think that's a whole different... A whole and, and that requires some alcohol. Um, we can do yeah, that. <laughs> two, two gin and tonic minimum. We can do that one time. All right. Um, okay, let's close this one off for now because we've gone through a lot of stuff. I just sure. want to give you the floor. Is there any other things that you want to bring up to highlight that sort of tie into the conversation that we have? And then I'll do a couple of rapid fire at the end to sure. some last points. Well, I think we have a very clear prescriptive path for any company to turn itself into an EXO now. And it's largely it's as free as you want to make it. Free training on EXO. Take the sprint and run it for yourself if you want. And we've laid out the methodology for people. The companies that are using these processes are getting 70 times a return on investment from this effort, from just the work of transformation. So we, and it's, it's you know, when we first started this conversation 10 years ago about what we have newer, nobody believed me and we didn't under, we didn't have any data points. Tesla wasn't rampantly successful. Uber and, and Airbnb were just getting started. It was tough to say, hey, this, the world's getting disrupted. Big companies are like, eh, yeah, we don't see it at all. Now it's a very easy conversation, Much but more, more than yeah. that, we have a prescriptive path on how to transform. And I think that's the unbelievable opportunity. That's I tend to be, this is why we're so excited about the future. Where do people go? Uh, website, social, all that. Um, our website for is- for you too, for you as well. So to. my website is salimasmail.com and you can search for me on YouTube and, and, and hear lots about me spouting on. Um, our website for the platform and our community is openexo.com. And on there, we offer a free diagnostic where somebody could score their own company, see where they are. The training is free. We have to pay a charge of it for the certification because we have to do some work to certify. But the tr video training is free. And we've open sourced in an exponential transformation. How do you run the sprint? And actually, Peter uh, Diamandis and I are now co-authoring the second edition of the EXO book. That's uh, be uh, that. And that's essentially going deep into the model. And saying what is an exponential organization, what are the characteristics, and how do you start one? And that book is coming out in a few months. Amazing. We just okay. finished the main writing for it. I had to rewrite the whole damn thing after NFTs and blockchain came out it's, because it's, it's quick. Things change. <laughs> you look at you look at you take a community and you apply crypto economics, and yeah. boom, the results are un the engagement level is unbelievable. 
actually, I, I, when you, I didn't even mention this, but when you mentioned uh, figuring out your MTP and building a community around that, that's what I, that's what I found. Like, if we look at all the most successful companies and projects at any stage, it's all about community building. It completely. Look and, at all the successful yeah. blockchains. Yeah. Uh, community plus crypto economics. And now, now it transcends blockchain too. Like it's completely. It could be a CPG company. It could be yeah. a service company. You can build community, which is uh, that's like everyone's like, okay, the buzzword is community, but how the hell do I do it? Well, you galvanize people around the cause. Bingo, MTP. Yeah, exactly. Okay, bringing it back to you. Yeah. Um, you've had an incredible career. What was the biggest challenge that you've had in your own personal life or professional? But how did you overcome it? What did you learn from it? Um, biggest challenge was. I found that every three, four years, my career would just end in a disaster and I had to reinvent myself. And I used to look at that as negative and oh my God, my career just ended disaster. Um, and then I found that's actually a massive positive transformation because the next thing was always 10 times better than before. I joined Yahoo, super excited about hacking a big company, find I can't hack the big company. Microsoft tries to buy it. This is a nightmare, I leave. Singularity was 100x better. Uh, Singularity was unbelievable. World's top thinkers. I'm interviewing them all on stage, moderating events for, for years. I've got the world's kind of information in my hands and being able to transmit that to tens of thousands of students, incredible. Uh, the EXO book was 10 times better because now we can say, here's what you can do about it. And now we can give people some guidance and a prescriptive path to managing transformation. Um, that was unbelievable. But now we have a community of like a hive mind of 17,000 people that are the most incredibly inspiring people I've ever met. And I can ask a question in that community, what do we think about X? And I'll get this most unbelievable, like almost a doctoral thesis of, hey, here's why, here's what I disagree with. And we get this kind of dialogue and dialectic discussion yeah. on some topic, autonomous cars, or what or do we think Elon Musk should buy Twitter? And you just get this rich discussion that makes everybody 10X smarter. And, and actually, just to follow up on that point, when you built out Singularity, um, how did you, like, you had your MTP for Singularity, and I'm sure that's what helped you build the community around, but how did you, how did you tap into these 17,000 people when I don't think there's ever really been much done like what you're building before? Um, so Singularity uh, did two things. So the main brainchild behind Singularity was Peter Diamandis. He had built International Space University, and he read Ray's Prize as well. That's X Prize yeah. is Peter. Yeah. I'm not on the board of XPRIZE because it's a, it's actually worth touching on this. The reason these XPRIZES work is when you put up a $10 million prize on space, it turns out about 30 teams will spend $150 million in R&D trying to win the $10 million. Wow. So it's the best leveraged innovation model ever found. And the collective innovation has created a $2 trillion space industry that didn't exist before. So you put up a $10 million prize and you launch a $2 trillion industry, that's unbelievable. Right. So if we're optimistic and enthusiastic about the world, this is why we see these structures, we see these technology, we see these breakthroughs. So I joined the board a few years ago, and it's been fascinating to watch that community spread. This what happened with Singularity is when the idea was, can we train the world's leaders on the future? And the idea was, let's bring the young students, the thirty-year-olds, that are going to be running the world in the next ten years, and arm them with the future of technology and awareness of what's where will blockchain be in two, three, five, seven years. Where are these technologies intersecting? What are the tr inflection points you should be tracking? And send them back to their home countries. And when they get to positions of power, they should be making better decisions than our horrible, crusty 80-year-old leadership today. Right? And that's now proving to be the case in countries around the world. Once we have the, the kind of platform of that thinking around the world, 
the prescriptive aspect of EXOs and how do you now organize for this, not just private sector, but public sector becomes really powerful. Now we can transmit that layer, say, here's how you organize for this. And there's enough people around the world in different countries, like Minister of Oceans and Mauritius. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. That's nuts, right? Um, and um, get that out there. And now we can feed that platform, that EXO platform of incredibly bright people around the world with new ideas and say, hey, who wants this? Who wants that? Who needs what? Who needs what? And we're turning that into a DAO. And as we move towards kind of governance and things, it, it's just because it's easier. We don't have to manage it. It's a nightmare to manage it. Yeah, kind of a community. It's huge. Yeah, yeah. It's really in multiple languages. Yeah. And we speak 46 languages. So this is a huge challenge building this ecosystem. I think we want to get to about um, 100,000 trained people in the community. And then I'll feel uh, comfortable that we've got enough critical mass to then attack institutional transformation. And that'll be the next layer around this. Understood. Um, You've had a lot of people in your life, mentors in your life, people that have had huge impacts on you. If you had to pick one, who was it? Why is why is it that person, and what did they teach you? I can't just pick one. I'll pick two. Pick two. Okay. Uh, Peter Diamandis has to be one of them. Um, his uh, his incredible energy and ability to think at scale, think of th he he's the one that's moved most of us from scarcity thinking to abundance thinking, right? And he's got this unbelievable like when he runs into a problem, he just executes his way out of it. And that sheer gumption of just hacking right through it. Like when he tried to launch XPRIZE, nobody would fund a prize. The financial system was crashing. And he just tacked away at it until, it's, until it got there. And there, So that's kind of an incredible, awe-inspiring model. Um, the second, I would say, is uh, somebody who passed away recently, Lawrence Bloom. Who was the, I think he was the first chairman of the World Economic Forum. He's been thinking at a systemic change level of how is evolutionary consciousness changing and he kind of showed me there was a whole large group of people that is, are thinking in this way, but they don't know the path to get there. Uh, and so it's been incredibly inspiring to see that there's large groups of people that think about systems change, and we're providing the tool set and capability to, to navigate and to support that group in changing the world. Um, and the final thing I would think is the, the younger generation today is unbelievably inspiring to me. They're really driven by, like, good things in the world. And I'm unbelievably optimistic about what's happening in the world in general. You see the unbelievable outpouring for help in Ukraine, et cetera. We can now transmit compassion around the world. And I think is really exciting. There's so, there's so easy to focus on the negative, but we forget to focus on the unbelievable positive nature. I'll give the smallest example. If you went back before, so people complain about all the damage cell phones doing, et cetera. We have a 10 year old child. If you were raising a kid 20 years ago and you had a babysitter coming, you have no idea. Is she going to be late? Is he going to be late? Are they going to get there on time? Uh, what if they're, if they're late? Are they actually coming? Are they just delayed? So you end up with all the stress and worry about what's going on. Now you're texting back and forth. I'll be there. Th I'll be six minutes late. Yeah. My bus is late, whatever. And you have infinite knowledge and you, could, you're, you get infinite more peace of mind because you have so much more data about the world. People forget that. People forget the unbelievable benefits from the magic of all of the technology we have, allowing us to video anywhere in the world for free with my son. Connect with people everywhere. Yeah. Just an un the world is such an incredibly magical place. We get super excited by the future uh, and, and try not to get trapped in the past. So the younger generation, Lawrence Bloom gave me, and Peter, and, and then my wife who holds the spiritual foundation. You know, I used to make a lot of money and then lose a lot of money. Make a lot of money, lose them all, do well, total yeah. mess up. 
Then I met my wife and I do well, not mess up, do well, not mess up. <laughs> she like, she was this like foundation that stopped me from totally messing up. Then I'd go to the next thing, not mess up. And so that's been profound because the, the depth of potential has just increased for me massively. Incredible. If you had to pick a, a resource, a book or something that's had a big impact on your life, what would you recommend people go check out? Um, I do. I suggest two. One is the Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which laid down it kind of over, over 1974. The guy laid out an overview of all the different philosophical schools of thought. Yeah, it was incredibly powerful. But more powerful was this the sequel to it called Leela, published I think 95, where he lays out here's the metaphysics of how the world works, and that just blew my mind. So that would be one. The second would be the Power of Myth by Joseph Campbell, just laying out here's comparative mythology. We have the same myths in all of our different societies. And what what is human aspiration all about? And then the third would be uh, probably The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle that gives you a deep snapshot on how to be present and the importance of being present. Um, those are all kind of fairly spiritual books. I have a degree in theoretical physics, so quantum mechanics I find fascinating. Oh, I've got a great little suggestion for your viewers. There's a... 11-minute video on YouTube. It's called the Delayed Quantum Choice Experiment. Okay? If you ever think somebody is spouting on about quantum mechanics and thinks they know what they're talking about, go go send them to this video called the Delayed Quantum Choice Experiment and it just blows your mind. Okay, good. So, uh, so I'll, I'll find it. I'll link it in go. the show notes. <laughs> It'll be good. There you go. Um, uh, if you had to tell your 20-year-old self one thing, what would yeah. it be? Um, play full out. Just go play full out and to hell with the consequences. Don't worry about what society thinks of you. And back then when I was growing up, there were a few role models to uh, to indicate how to live. And so I had to rely on fate chucking me around and beating me up until I got there. Today we have the Elon Musk, we have the Vitaliks, we have people doing radically crazy things and teaching the whole world. Pfft, go nuts. You have one life to live it. Uh, and last question. Yeah. What does success mean to you? Uh, success for me, I think, is, I, I like the the best definition of leadership I've ever seen is the opportunity the, the poten- to serve the potential in people around you. And I think for us, for me, the success is creating a potential for every human being on the planet to live uh, fully. I want to take a second and thank Indeed. They're a huge sponsor of the Success Story podcast. And as business leaders, we're all driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. It's to match with Indeed. Now, if you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. You need to ditch the busy work. You need to use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster All the tools you need are in one spot. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clary. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, 
you need indeed. This episode is brought to you by NetSuite. Now, as a business owner, I always remember when my company hits a growth spurt. It's great, but then you realize that things start to break. Things are taking three times as long. Manual processes start to bury your team in paperwork and admin, and you really don't have one reliable source of data or truth to understand how healthy your business is. If this sounds familiar, you have to know three numbers. 37,000, that's how many businesses have upgraded to NetSuite, the number one cloud financial system. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years streamlining accounting, inventory, HR, and more for growing companies. And one, because your business truly is one of a kind, NetSuite gives you customized solutions so you can manage everything about your business in one place, from inventory to invoicing, one powerfully efficient system. I love having all of my data in one spot. NetSuite allows me to do that. It gives me the big picture so I can make smarter decisions. And they turn complex financials into understandable, actionable insights. Right now, you can get NetSuite's popular KPI checklist for free to help improve your business. It's designed to help you boost performance across key areas of your business. Go to netsuite.com slash scottclary to download the checklist and see how one complete system can transform your growth. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. Get more control in your business with NetSuite. Just a quick question. Have you ever had one of those oh no moments when you realize that you accidentally deleted a huge file or worse, your whole computer dies. I know I have. It's happened to me a lot, but don't sweat it. The sponsor of today's episode, Backblaze, they have your back. It is unlimited backups for all your Macs, your PCs, or even your whole company, and it's really affordable, under 100 bucks a year. If you're running a business, they take the stress out of protecting everyone's data. If you need more bells and whistles for compliance, so on and so forth, they have enterprise options too. Honestly, losing data sucks, but Backblaze makes getting it back easy. They have restored billions of files. They offer tons of restore options, including rapid recovery in an event of data loss or ransomware. And you can access your backed up data from everywhere and anywhere in the world using their web app, iOS, or Android apps. It's been recommended by the New York Times, Inc., Macworld, PC World, LifeWire, Wired, Tom's Guide, 9to5Mac, and tons more. And best, you can try it fully featured with no risk at backblaze.com slash story. They set up that link for all Success Story podcast listeners. That is a no-risk free trial at backblaze.com slash story. Seriously, back up your stuff. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information. But Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all success Story podcast listeners get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com 
Amazon.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. I want to thank Belay for sponsoring today's episode. They provide solutions that all of us need. They help us get back more of our time because time is the most precious resource. A lot of you listening are business leaders, entrepreneurs. You know that if you spend your time incorrectly, it can make or break your business, your personal, professional relationships. It can completely sidetrack you and stop you from reaching your goals. So I'm going to ask you, are you protecting your time? How much of your day is eaten up by tasks that could have been done by someone else? Wouldn't you rather spend your time on things that truly matter? The answer should be yes, because you have to to move the needle on whatever it is you're trying to build. That's where Belay comes in. They are the nation's largest pool of exceptional U.S.-based talent. Belay offers flexible staffing solutions to free you up. Need a virtual assistant to conquer those pesky administrative tasks or maybe an accounting professional to really keep your finances in order? Belay can help with all that and way more. Their personalized matching process saves you the headache of hiring by finding the perfect match for your needs in as little as a week. Focus on what matters the most with the help from Belay. Text SUCCESS. That's S-U-C-C-E-S-S to 55123 to learn more and get started.